I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzone. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned. I'm Abby Kinney, and today I'm joined by my friend Chuck Marone. Uh, how are you doing today, Chuck? Fantastic. I wasn't on last week. Has it been a couple weeks for us, or is it? I can't remember the last time we did this. <laughs> yeah, it's been two weeks now. We had Kevin Klinkenberg on last week, and Daniel Harrigus actually got to be the host, so I got a little break. Oh, so you were off last week too. I was on, but I was I was the person being interviewed. Oh, okay. You the tables were turned. I get it. The so tables I'm, were I'm turned. I, that shows you how busy I've been. I haven't even had a chance to listen. So hopefully, uh, I will go back and do that. Yeah, it's a good one. I I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed letting Daniel be the host for a week. It kind of takes the pressure off, and he did a great job. I thought. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, the article we are going to be talking about today was published in the Wall Street Journal by Katie McLaughlin entitled COVID-19 is giving multi-generational home business a big boost. So with the COVID-19 pandemic being especially risky for older adults, the model of conventional senior housing is proving to be less stable than previously thought. The last two quarters has seen the largest drop in occupancy for assisted and independent living facilities on record. And with this shift, a new real estate opportunity is emerging. Some adults are choosing to purchase homes that offer an accessory living space for elderly parents as an alternative to institutional housing facilities. The home building industry is taking notice, reporting an increase in the number of housing that is being sold with multi-generational living spaces and producing new home designs uh, for both multi-generational homes and accessory dwelling units. So the article features several beautiful examples being built across the country with all kinds of special features. And, you know, as someone who lives in an older neighborhood with lots of I guess I would say unconventional living options. I can't help but notice how multi-generational living in this article has been framed as something novel or even upscale because it certainly isn't a new concept and certainly doesn't have to be upscale either. Still, I am very glad to see this and very glad to see that multi-generational living is having kind of a moment right now. I think as planners, obviously, we like this, right? We're like inclined to think this is really good for a whole bunch of reasons. I'm going to bring up a book that I read, I think, last year. It's it's Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. It's a book about end of life and end of life care. And it it had a big effect on me. A lot of it was the hook at the beginning, right? At the beginning, he, he sets up what I think is like the ideal family situation, right? He he goes through and he's like, in. I think his family's from India. He talks about going home or going to India and running into people. And here's the, the house they're living in has the two parents and then the kids and then grandma and grandpa live there providing, you know, all this support and stability. And then uh, cousins live there and aunts and uncles are nearby. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, this sounds quite delightful. Like this sounds very nice. And then he kind of hooks you into that and then he gives you the alternate and he kind of goes, you know, hey, 
when given the option, people don't choose this. And it's not just that it's forced on them. People like their own space. And he kind of goes through and lays it out. And it, it questioned, in a way, some of the beliefs that I have as a planner on the way families should be structured and the way you know uh, housing should be structured, less rigid, less American, basically. And his, his core argument was a, a challenge to that. And so I've spent a lot of time since then thinking about that idea. Because for me, it's a, it's a very easy, I won't say solution, I don't think that's quite the right word, but it's a very easy way to take the edge off of all the negative things that have gone along with group care facilities, you know, not the least of which now in the pandemic, we've had, you know, one of the most difficult situations where these places have been kind of the epicenter of people not only getting sick, but dying. We have here in Minnesota now, some of these facilities can't be staffed. And so they're calling in National Guard people because the staff has actually gotten sick and had to quarantine. And, and you have these care facilities where you need to have somebody there, but there's literally no one to go to work and do this stuff. So to me, like the obvious answer to that is, well, just make it easier for people to not have to go to these places. I think that the interesting like sociological part of this is that people don't always choose that. And I'm not sure why. I'm fascinated to know why. I wrote in my book at the end in chapter 10 that I'm not sure I would want to live with my mother-in-law. Like if my mother-in-law said, like, I'm moving in tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would jump up and down and be excited about that. But I would do it and I would be ha I would, I, you know, I would welcome her. And I wrote in my book that I think I would be a better person. You know, because I, I feel like when she is around, I, I try to be a better version of myself. I, I feel like there's, you know, a planning side of this that is very simple and easy and logical. But I feel like this is maybe one of the places where planners, you know, have a limited viewpoint that doesn't necessarily correlate with the desires of society at large. And I really sometimes don't know what to do about that. I guess I would say that you provide options. You know, we, we can't micromanage how families ought to be living together because people are making decisions based on their own set of circumstances. I think that considering what we're seeing with the pandemic and older people being isolated by themselves in, in these facilities and it being exposed to COVID, I think that that actually changes the situation for a lot of people who now no longer want their older family members to be living uh, in, in a senior housing facility. That may not be the case for everybody, but I think it's important that as a planner, we're thinking about providing options so that people can be flexible and that our environments can respond to to the craziness that life throws at us, right? I, I actually find it kind of odd that we separate our aging population in the first place. And I feel that humans are not meant to live in pods and isolated senior living communities seem to be just another Euclidean approach to developing our places, separating every use that we can think of from single family subdivisions to apartment complexes, retail centers, and now senior living. And it's a, a phenomenon that seems to be an obvious outcome of the conventional uh, development pattern that we've been seeing for the past several generations. 
We have conventional subdivisions and they are often built for a market that fits a particular lifestyle, which is younger families with children. And as the homeowners age and may no longer need a large house with a big yard and high taxes, they might be looking to downscale. And thus the rational next product to be delivered is the senior living community. And when I think about these communities or facilities, it kind of makes me sad personally because I don't want to be isolated when I get older and I don't want to isolate my grandma who is very independent and is able to live alone um, or my parents either. And obviously there's plenty of retired people today who have made the decision to live in these types of places. And I wonder if that trend will continue with Gen X and especially millennials. I have a hard time believing that people who live their lives in a more traditional neighborhood setting would suddenly decide to move to a community with only people that are just like them unless they really needed some sort of health care on an ongoing basis. I think about my own neighborhood, which has tons of older long-term residents living in all sorts of arrangements. And we even have an assisted living center inside the neighborhood for people who need that more intensive medical care. I've actually heard people joke about this neighborhood being called a retirement village because there's just so many older residents that continue to, to live here. And I actually really love that because I don't I, I don't need to live in a place where people are just in their 20s. And I like the age range and, and living around all kinds of interesting and wonderful people. I feel like you hit on the truth when you talk about options. Right now, it, it's really hard to discern you know, how much of our living pattern is in this term, in this sense, you know, for elderly people, how many of us putting people in, you know, institutionalized settings and not having them live in our own, you know, homes or in accessory units or nearby, how much of that is a function of that's all that's available? Or in the case of like my neighborhood, that's all that's allowed. I mean, if we wanted to turn our house into a, a duplex and have one of those be a, a separate unit that my you know in-laws could live in or what have you, that, that is not even allowed. So I, that's not an option for me. How much of this is a function of things not being allowed and how much of it is a function of this is our personal choice? For the former, I, I think you know just the idea of providing options should give us some insights. Minneapolis, you know, has changed their codes. I know Portland has done a lot with accessory dwelling units, and so has Seattle and some other uh, places in the Pacific Northwest. I think it will be interesting to see how those are used over time, and if there's some, in a sense, evolution in what is a family that evolves out of those places where you see more of this not just the college student renting an ADU, but an elderly couple renting an ADU and, and having mixed generational living in one one property or one lot or even one house in a sense. And I wonder how much on the other side, and I'll, I'll put it like this, and I, I think people always react negatively when I say things like this, but I think declining affluence or Another way to put it would be just like a financial reckoning, which I, I think is what we're, we are dealing with and what we are in the middle of right now is a, a financial reset to something that is more uh, in touch with reality. How much that will affect our choices too. You know, I, I look at the range of senior living and 
in my community here, you can spend a lot of money and go into a facility that is generally thought of as, as pretty nice. You have your own space. It's well kept up. You have medical treatment on site, people who can come and help you. But if you start falling down that, that ladder of affluence, in a sense, you, you go down a couple notches, the places that are cheap are not very nice. And they have all kinds of a history of people being, uh, I'll say this, and I'm, I'm not talking about any specific place, but you know, people being mistreated or not receiving the type of treatment you would like, people being neglected. And so if you came to me and said, you know, my in-laws or my parents could go to this really nice place, I don't know. I mean, I might think differently of it than if you said, uh, they're going to go to this place that you know is not all that great. I wonder when those financial choices are narrowed for us, if we will opt for more traditional arrangements. And tradi by traditional arrangements, I mean having extended families under one roof. You can go to, and I, I'll point to Santa Ana, where we did our gathering last year, uh, a, a predominantly Latino community. You can go to a community like that where there is less affluence and where there is more openness to traditional family relationships. And you see a city that has enormous population density without towers, without condo units, without what we would typically think of as density. And you see that because what they have is they have traditional family relationships. They have one house is not just parents and kids, but it's parents, kids, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, extended family, the friend who, you know, is down on their luck, all living under one roof. For Americans, it, it's almost like our affluence has, we've grown out of that, like that's passe. Um, I wonder if as our affluence becomes more checked by reality, if we don't open ourselves up to these other arrangements again. Yeah. And I think that it's important to, to basically make sure that our zoning codes and things of of that nature are anticipating flexibility in the future and, and understanding that these things don't have to be luxury units. The, the article really features a lot of really beautifully designed new homes that happen to be uh, multi-generational, which is great. And if families want to build high-end multi-generational housing models, that's great too. But we need to not overlook existing building stock that we've inherited and its potential to deliver more modest price points. Many older neighborhoods have very large homes because family size used to be much larger and, and living arrangements with other generations used to be a bit different. And many of them could be easily retrofitted to provide a separate space for grandma and grandma could have her own bathroom and her own kitchen. Being able to insulate grandma from the threat of pandemic is an important distinction here that I think uh, city planners ought to be thinking about and looking at zoning codes to see if people are able to retrofit large homes for interior accessory dwelling for properties that have extra yard space or a detached garage. I think that we need to be looking into how we can enable detached accessory dwelling units and how those can be delivered at a price point that is less uh, expensive than sending grandma to a senior living facility. If you go to any neighborhood built prior to the 19, let's say the 1930s, 
you are likely to see a great variety of housing options in that place. And many of them are perfectly suited for housing multiple generations of a family. It's really only been a few generations that we've decided to build our communities under this different model where we just kind of build one product uh, in one place. And I think that's why multi-generational living seems like a new invention, even though it's really not. I, I think you brought up a really good point when talking about communities that currently live uh, multi-generationally. We have lots of families in our country that live that way. In my own city, there are neighborhoods that have those large old houses and they're much larger than what today's kind of single generation family would likely demand. And those houses are perfect for, for multi-generational families. And in fact, some of those spaces actually have a third floor that can be used as a separate living space. I actually have some friends of mine that that their family live that way and and their mother happens ironically happens to be an immigrant and they live multi-generationally in one house and have that extra space for family members to kind of live in their own in their own unit uh, in a sense. So some families live with multiple generations under the same roof despite whether or not an older family member has their own space and with the considerations of a pandemic I, I think that's what planners ought to be looking at. Since people are doing that already, we need to be making sure it is legal to uh, give them that extra space and give them their own, the ability to, for example, build a kitchen or build a separate unit so that people who are older when there is a pandemic can essentially have their own their own area and be safe from, from the younger people in the family. It's interesting. I know you know that this summer I broke my foot. It was eye-opening for me because I've I've never done anything like that before. I'm I'm generally healthy. Like my only health issues have been like breaking teeth, not uh, limbs. And so I, it was very strange to me to have to climb up and down stairs on one foot. I noted a few times when I was experiencing this because at one point I got what my kids called a peg leg. Uh, basically, instead of having crutches, I had a a, a knee brace thing that would bend your knee up and then you could walk and one of your legs was like, looked like a peg leg. And I, you could get around a lot easier this way and go up and down the stairs. It really drove home, you know, what my parents have been telling me. My dad had polio when he was a kid. And so his legs are really messed up and he has a really difficult time with steps. And so when he comes over, you know, they'll walk up the few steps into the house, but they would never go on different floors. It just drove home to me, like how, housing for a couple or individual that would be, you know, have those physical limitations is just has to be much different. And I, if I wound up like permanently doing something to my foot, I don't know as we could live in our house because we only have one bath and shower and it's on the second floor. We only have bedrooms on the second floor. I take those insights and I look at the suburban housing we have today. You have millions of housing units that are on infrastructure that is not viable in developments that are kind of wired to blow up. You know, they have this financial echo effect where all the buildings that were built within just a handful of years in one neighborhood in a generation all go bad at the same time. And, and so you, you have this need to have an injection of capital 
and and equate that to an injection of productivity and 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 just human wealth in a place to me the low hanging fruit of that conversation is to take these buildings and allow them again we get back to your idea of creating options allow them with zero regulatory friction or the minimum amount of regulatory friction necessary allow them to be adapted so that multi-generational people can live in them i am baffled by especially suburbs who resist this because i look at them and i say if you can't meet that threshold of reform i don't see what future you have like i don't get i don't even have any advice for you on what to do next if you can't figure out that little what is really an easy kind of thing to do i don't even know how to tell you like what to do next so i feel like this is it's one of these things where like planners have the great insight and i think planners are generally right on this but the rest of society is going to have to lead it like planners will not lead us out of this they can set up the rules and they can make it easier and they can reduce that regulatory friction but if the rest of the population doesn't get on board i don't know what comes next quite frankly yeah that's a really good question well on that note i think we'll end uh that's all the time we have for today but before we conclude it is time for the down zone which is the part of the show where chuck and i get to share anything that we've been reading or watching or just anything captivating our time these days I'm curious. It's been a couple of weeks, Chuck. I'm curious what you've been up to. The last week when I was gone, I was actually at Disney World <laughs> for the whole week <laughs> doing some doing doing some work for Strong Towns, of mind you. I was actually, um, but it was myself and and a, a friend of mine who went with to help out. It was actually quite exhausting, far more than I thought. And I did not do much reading. I, I have delved back into a book called Slow Church. Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. And it's written by a guy named John Pattison, who you may know is our content manager here at Strong Towns. Um, I've heard of him, yes. Yeah. He's, a, he's a great guy. He wrote this book, and I bought it over a year ago. And I, I started it a little bit, and then I got sidetracked. And I'm coming back to it now, not only because it's a very good book and I am enjoying it, but uh, John has agreed to come on the Strong Towns podcast and talk about it. So we're going to... We're going to end the year at Strong Towns with a little conversation about slowing down. Uh, you know, we've all been forced to slow down this year uh, to a degree, and uh, just how this can help us cultivate community in the patient way. So, yeah, it's a great book, and and I'll be talking about it more in a couple of weeks. Well, I love that, and I'm looking forward to that interview. And thank you for reminding me that I need to schedule a trip to Mexico to go to a resort to do some very important planning research work. So yes, <laughs> yeah, you, you got to go to the best places. It's incredible <laughs> because I wrote a little bit last week about being at Disney and how, you know, everyone's wearing masks and I'm pro mask. I'm on team mask. Don't email me about it, but you know, it, <laughs> It, it is, it, it was, I didn't say it quite this harsh in the article, but it was a joyless trip in the sense that being at a place like Disney World, a lot of it is about seeing people smile and have fun and smile at you. And you, you know, you're enjoying this, this thing together and to have people socially distance with masks on 
with really, I mean, people watching was a very different experience and it was one with a lot less joy. That being said, it also was ridiculously cheap. And that was why I did it now because I'm cheap. Um, I think my (laughs) airfare was $150 round trip. We had a two bedroom condo unit, which is a really high end place. And I think we paid 45 bucks a night. So it was a very cheap trip. And fortunately I got you know, I, I've not gotten coronavirus and I got tested when I got back and everything's good. So now is the time if you are adventurous and willing to tolerate, you know, the basic hand washing and social distancing and masks and, and all the things that you would need to do, uh, you know, a little more intensely, you can take some really great trips right now. Were there any lines? The lines were really, really long in terms of length. They actually have shut down almost, well, they shut down every show and they've shut down a lot of rides because they're using that space for the ride queue. But the reason why the lines are so long in distance is because of the spacing. In terms of time, the lines were ridiculously short. You would have like a like a line for the Pirates of the Caribbean ride or the Haunted Mansion ride would go down the street and around the corner. And at a normal time, you'd look at that and be like, that's a two and a half hour line. And it would be like 20 minutes, you know, just because of all the spacing. Well, it's good you had an opportunity to get out of town and go on a trip. I've been thinking about doing that, but we just keep going down to Bentonville, which has lots of accessory dwelling units to look at. So that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you've kind of fallen in love with that place too. So that's not, you know, it's not a bad thing. I have. Yeah. Well, I love mountain biking, so it's it's an easy place to love if you love biking. Definitely. <laughs> well, so I know it's only mid-November, but for the first time ever, I've become the type of person who's not annoyed to see holiday lights and decorations all yes. over the place this early. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I've I was actually able to borrow some holiday decorations from my father-in-law last week. My mother-in-law, who passed away last year, was very much into Christmas decorations and just has buckets and buckets of materials that we don't get utilized as much now. So uh, this year, we were able to utilize them and, and decorate our house and Uh, kind of embrace a longer holiday season, despite all the unknowns with regard to seeing family and things like that. You know, I've also been drawing up a model of our house and will be building out a two-scale gingerbread house, (laughs) which I will share pictures of. Yes, I'm going to make a site model. It'll have the topography. I've I've never built a gingerbread house before, but I've built plenty of models uh, when I was in studio in school. So we will see how it goes. I'm hoping it's not a total fail. I'm uh, I'm excited to see this now. I'm this is going to come out the day before Thanksgiving, and of course we we will not be traveling nor having anybody over. Um, but like you, I'm in the I'm in the spirit. Last week at the resort at the at the parks, it was all decked out for Christmas with Christmas music and and all that, and so wonderful. I do baking every year, and I've moved up my I've moved up my baking schedule, so I'm actually going to start here in a couple of days too. So yeah, hey. If we're going to be stuck indoors, let's get it on and be merry and happy and and share some cheer with people, right? Yeah, exactly. Bring it on. I'm a, It's been such a bummer of a year that we may as well be just embracing all the holidays and 
having something to be exciting about. Maybe we'll celebrate Valentine's Day for the first time. Maybe. <laughs> it's uh yeah, <laughs> we'll do all the Hallmark holidays as well and and any other any other special days that are on the calendar. So I got an advertisement that I thought was kind of funny. It was for a a Christmas tree ornament. And the Christmas tree ornament was a dumpster that had 2020 written on it. <laughs> And then it was open up and there was a flame coming out and the flame was the light. <laughs> and so you you hooked it into your lights on your tree and it was a dumpster fire at the year 2020. And I, I, I was like, I'm not going to pull the trigger on that um, because I don't want to be hanging that up next year and the year after and the year after. But that was that was well played. Like that was very good. So it gave me a chance. That's hilarious. That's worth yeah. keeping yeah. and putting on your on your fridge. <laughs> At least people are having fun with the oh, total trying. disaster of a year we've been yeah. having. Yeah. Thank you, Abby. Uh, well Yeah, thanks, Chuck. And thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Mm-hmm.